Daniel, Daniel 4. So if you want to turn to your Bibles, it's page 887, I think. It's not a short one, it's a long one, so get comfy. There's probably no way to kind of, to summarize this. I think it's just a really powerful story, so we're going to try and do it justice. So picking up in verse 4. This is Nebuchadnezzar, the king, speaking. So I, Nebuchadnezzar, that's how I say it, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions that I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches, and from it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, Cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it, and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let it be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of people. So then skipping on, Daniel interprets the dream. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar, Daniel answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your, mas- your, ma- your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass him by. This is the interpretation, your majesty. 
He then goes on and effectively says that the king is the tree. That because of his pride, God is going to humble him. He says that for seven seasons, he's going to be effectively thrown out of his kingdom and he's going to live like an animal. And the dew of heaven will fall on him. So moving on a little bit later, and sorry, in verse 29, that happened after 12 months. It was actually when the king's pride had got in his way. It was when he was actually saying, look at my great empire that suddenly God struck. So picking up in verse 34. So this is the king living in the fields like an animal, like a madman. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. We'll just move on a few verses again. So once he honoured God, we pick up in verse 36. At the same time, my sanity was restored. My honour and splendour was returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that in this story there is so much for us to to chew on and to get our heads around. Lord, as we've sung this morning, let not pride remain within us, but let you open our hearts that would be open to your kingdom reigning inside us. May you just speak your word to us this morning. May you encourage us and may you help us to find your hope and peace. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know how your, your Sunday mornings look as you're getting ready for church. With a house of three young children, our mornings are always slightly chaotic and slightly unpredictable. And the other week was no exception. Poor Lucy was trying to get out the door and my youngest son, Daniel, decided that he wanted to be a lion. And, uh, and he won the fight. So on went the costume. And many may have seen that as he kind of strode into to church and found his seat, he was in the full, there you go, the full outfit. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and he was not messing about. He was ready to be a lion. It just so happens that was the start of our Daniel series, and we, it was not a premeditated thing. We hadn't talked to him about the series. <laughs> he, was just, uh, he was just positioned in the right place at the right time. You know, today's passage is all about the hope of God's kingdom, how it breaks through into one man's life. It's about one man's strength and courage and another man's remarkable transformation. Hopefully you caught that in the scripture. This king turns from persecutor of the faithful to witness of the faith. It's it's quite remarkable. In the short time that we have, Mike has asked me to focus mainly on Daniel and his life. So I want us to think about three questions. Where did God position Daniel? Where did God position Daniel? And then what was he positioning Daniel for? And having positioned Daniel there, how was Daniel able to do all that God was putting him there to do? And I want us then to flip that back to ourselves and to ask, where has God positioned you and I? What has he positioned us for? And lastly, are you ready Are you ready for what God has positioned you for? So I'll just give you a few seconds to think about the first question. Where has God positioned you? Have a think.
Okay, thinking about Daniel, so where has God positioned him? Well, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the main, one of the main characters in this passage. So he's just led his army to conquer Jerusalem. Okay, this was a really vicious battle. Some were probably lucky enough, whichever way you look at it, to be led into exile, to live in Babylon, but some were not so lucky. You know, King Zedekiah, the last king of Jerusalem, was marched out of the city and made to watch as his two sons were murdered in front of him. That was the last thing that he would see before he was cruelly and viciously blinded. You know, this was a painful and forced exile. In Psalm 137, the Jews recall some of the horrors. You know, one of the practices of the Babylonians was to smash the heads of the infants against the rocks. You know, this, was not, this was not a nice time. I think it's fair to say that if you were a Jew living at that time, you probably absolutely hated and despised the Babylonians. Yet this is where Daniel found himself. Daniel was taken into exile. And what made it worse was he was taken into the king's palace, chosen to serve as one of the wise men. You know, if you were Daniel, you could probably be mistaken for thinking this was some kind of cruel and sick joke. The last person in the world he probably wanted to serve and be close to was this king, this person who caused him so much pain and anguish, who stood there mocking the people he had just crushed. Have you ever questioned where God has placed you? You Have you had a moment like Daniel where you've been somewhere and it just doesn't make sense? Why are you there? Why is this season happening to you? I share one story um, from my life. I once worked for someone who I call call Bob. Um, We were colleagues um, for a large chunk of our career and then we got to that point where I almost took his job. Um, but I didn't, I chose not to. And I found myself working for Bob. And uh, to give you a brief intro to him, he was the kind of guy who'd had a car crash, his head had gone through the windscreen, and he still refused to wear seatbelts. You know, he was a guy who shaved with water alone and thought aftershave balm was for sissies. You know, can you imagine? He was not, a, not your normal guy, he was quite, a, quite an aggressive character. And on my day one of working for him, he took me into the boardroom, he sat me down, He rolled up his sleeves just so I could see those Chelsea Till I Die tattoos. For those who don't know, he was a bit of a football thug and Chelsea have a history of that. And he said in no uncertain terms, mess with me and I will kill you. Meeting over, he walked out. I was left there to think, what on earth was I doing working for this guy? Why didn't I take that job? But that was where I found myself. And and over two years, I came to realise actually those tattoos covered his entire body. You know, underneath his pretense and his pinstripe suit, there was actually quite an angry and aggressive character. You know, his threat to me was just a desperate call for my allegiance and loyalty. But we actually became really good friends. Um, the thing I regret was my, my approach to sharing my faith with him was very much on the slowly, slowly, and a little bit more slowly model. I don't know if everyone's tried that. It's not very effective. And, <laughs> It just happened that at that two-year interval, there was a partner's event. And so Lucy, my wife, for the first time, got to meet him and his wife. And within five minutes, I think, a trip to the loo, she'd found out that his wife was a new Christian. And it turned out that we'd both been kind of praying for this guy, and he was sandwiched between us. You know, and from that point on, as he discovered that I was a Christian, the relationship changed. And actually, I realized this is why God had positioned me in that place. But what about Daniel? 
You know, what was God positioning Daniel for? Well, in the chapter we've just read, or as a time, we find that he's called to interpret this dream. It's the second dream that the king has had. And in verse 5, we, the king lets on. He's, he's afraid. He's absolutely terrified of what it means. You know, his first approach is to call for the mystics, to bring them in. He's a believer in many gods. He hasn't worked out there's just the one true God. But that fails, and so Daniel gets his chance. You know, he interpreted it the first time round. He's called back into the palace to do it a second time. He has to be ready, and he is. I think it plays out a bit like a, a prayer ministry session. Daniel's probably there, hands out, eyes closed. And as he's praying to God to give him the dream, the king can see that he is visibly disturbed. You know, Daniel is getting a message that is not a word of encouragement. He's getting a message which actually speaks to the king's demise. You know, he's in the presence of this pretty aggressive character and he's about to tell him that God is going to humble him and bring him down. You know, in that moment, he's probably fretting and thinking, this is it for me, I'm gone. But he stays courageous. He interprets the dream just as God has given it to him. He goes against everything we're taught in prayer ministry, you know, to only offer words of encouragement. He says that 100% as God has given it to him. And I think in that moment, actually, God is faithful. You know, the king actually in this visible, not sorry, not visible, this vulnerable position is ready to accept what Daniel has to say. And so the dream is interpreted. You know, I think there's a real sense of favor over Daniel, similar to that of Joseph. You know, he finds himself at the center of the king's palace in the largest, most powerful kingdom in the ancient world of that time. You know, the dream described the kingdom as a tree reaching to heaven. It could not be, you know, any more splendid. You know, in Daniel 1, verse 17, you know, Daniel recalls how God gave him wisdom and understanding. It was so tangible that the king recognized that he was 10 times better than any other of the wise men. So he placed him in charge of all the wise men in the palace. There was a real sense of favor upon Daniel. What I find amazing as well is there's no obvious sign of anger, a desire for vengeance or malice towards the king. Daniel seems ready to submit. He seems ready to serve faithfully and obediently to this king in his palace. The words good and faithful servant come to mind. In Matthew 25, the parable of the bags of gold, it says those who are, entrusted with little, those who are faithful with little will be entrusted with more. And I think that's very much the case with Daniel. Now what is God positioning you and I for? What is he positioning you and I for? Moments that test and define our faith will probably look very different. They may be different in terms of type and scale, intensity, but probably no less significant both to us and to those involved. I share a story from university. I live with a, a house of non-Christians, and in my final year, on the day of an important exam, one of my friends hadn't surfaced. So I went up into his room, and it was dark, and it was smelly, and I drew back the curtains, and there he was, laying in his bed, just in his boxes, sweaty, hot, and looking pretty terrible. He said, I had a real high fever in the night, and Tim, you've got to pray for me, otherwise I'm going to miss this exam. 
I had nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. So I sat down and I agreed to pray for him. And begrudgingly put my hand on his sweaty body. And, <laughs> and I, I think I started to sweat more than him. I was so nervous that God might not show up, that he might not actually answer the prayer in the way that I was hoping and the way that Daniel was hoping. I did not want to look like a fool. To my great surprise, my friend got up, put on his clothes, and out he walked. You know, actually, it wasn't the start of his faith. To him, it was just natural. Why wouldn't a God kind of heal him? But to me, that was a huge encouragement. It was a significant moment. And in that moment, I actually thought, okay, yeah, I think for once I have been that faithful and good servant. We have to be ready. But what made Daniel ready? You know, we read the story of Jonah, and when he was sent to go to the people of Nineveh to tell them that they turned from their ways, that God would show mercy. Jonah couldn't, couldn't stomach it. He did not want God to pour out his love on this vicious and horrible group of people. Yet with Daniel, we do not, we do not get that sense. You know, as I said, when he tells the king that the, you know, he's going to be humble, that God is going to make him you know, lower than an animal, he's going to take away his sanity, that he's going to live in the fields. There's no sense that Daniel is jumping for joy. I finally got you. Actually, there's a sense that he shows empathy towards the king. He offers him a glimmer of hope. He says, if you just turn from your ways, maybe God will relent. And then when he tells the king that after seven seasons, he's going to restore him to his former glory, there is no sense of Daniel going to sit under a tree, frustrated and angry of God. He just seems to get it. But why does he get it? Well, maybe Jeremiah, in chapter 29, gives us a clue. Jeremiah was commissioned by God to send a message to the Jews, to offer them a message of hope and encouragement. The message says to the Jews, go, marry, and multiply, and settle in this land. Pray peace and prosperity over the Babylonians, over this city. And know that I have not forgotten you. The covenant promise is still at large. After 70 years, I will bring you back. But for now, this is where you're supposed to be. And in verse 11, we love that verse. It says, I have a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. That was a message for the Jews living at that time. Daniel probably knew that. And he probably knew some of the prophetical stories as well, like Micah, who said that the Jews living in Jerusalem at that time had to be humbled because they had turned away from God. So I suggest it's with that sense of, of hope and purpose that Daniel is able to faithfully serve in the way that he does. You know, he probably had questions. He probably couldn't get his head around exactly why it was playing out this way, why people were made to suffer in the way they had. But he trusted in one who was bigger than it all. He trusted in the hope of the kingdom, that God's kingdom was bigger than any man-made kingdom, and that he could crush Babylon just like that, if he so wished. But for now, that's where he was. His spiritual life was sustaining him. You know, he knew the scripture. He knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. You know, Deuteronomy 6, you know, that verse that says, you know, to love God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, and with all your soul. I think that was his DNA. That was his fabric. That's what made Daniel who he was. You know, he believed in Elohim, one God. He trusted in Yahweh, 
one Lord. He was not fooled by this pluralistic society which believed in many gods. He had one God and he was not going to compromise him. What I find amazing about Daniel is that this passionate, obedient, courageous man of God was highly effective in a place of work. Not a Christian place of work, but a secular place of work. The fact that he would not compromise his faith, that he did not compromise God, did not undermine him, did not prohibit him from succeeding, it was actually fundamental to his success. He didn't take the slowly, slowly, slowly model. There was no compromise. I don't know about you, but it's a challenge to me that in my walk, I've often recognized that there's a choice. Do I do it exactly as I should do, or do I compromise my faith? Well, if we want to take a lesson from Daniel, we do not compromise who we are. We trust that God is bigger than all of this. We trust that God is with us, and that by being faithful, he will do more incredible things through us. So how can we be ready? How can we be like Daniel? I'll share one last story. I was recently involved in a battle. It was the Battle of St. Melitus Theological College, the Oak Hill Theological College. I can't say the word. It took place at Oak Hill. We arrived. The grass was scarce. The trenches were dug. I knew that we were in for a fight. My comrades and I went down into the bunker. We discussed tactics and we got changed into our glorious orange strip. We emerged confident. We marched to the hilltop. We stood in the center of the semicircle. 11 wannabe vicars eyeballing 11 other wannabe vicars. They were our enemy for the day. A prayer was said by the referee, but it was not heard. <laughs> we, we fell back into position, myself at the centre defence, confident that my comrades were alongside me. The game started. It was underway. It felt right. It felt good. We had the lead. And then, unceremoniously, I was taken out. But not by sniper fire, but by my failing body. My hamstring had gone. Too early. I've been looking forward to that moment, but I've been found wanting. I was no Will Wheats. I didn't have a body like a temple. <laughs> you know, I, just, I just assumed that I could turn up and play football. Friends, we don't want to be found wanting, do we? We want to be people that are ready when the time comes. We need our spiritual life to sustain us. You know, some of us will be positioned as we've heard this morning, in good seasons, in good places, in good circumstances. Some of us will be in an indifferent times. And some of us actually will be in a place that is really hard. I would suggest that Daniel was actually in that hard place. But he was able to find a hope and encouragement in the one he loved and served. You know, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, I will be of you until the end of the age. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said that the Holy Spirit living within us can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's all I have to say. Why don't you ask yourselves, where has God positioned you? What are you there for? And are you ready? I think it was song three that we sang. You know, God wants us to kind of, you know, give up our pride. Let his kingdom in so that we can be the people that God has called us to be. So that we can be the beacons of light, the hope, the justice seekers, 
the righteous, in the places that we have to trust, God has called us to be in for this season.